Welcome to Piano Rhapsody, an amateur's guide to classical piano. This is a podcast where you follow the musical journey of an amateur piano player who's striving to play advanced level works one day. Specifically, Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, which is where the podcast gets its name. Every week, we break down one of the pieces that I encounter along the road to this goal, ranging from the 18th century all the way up to modern day. We'll explore the history surrounding the work, examine the music within, and hopefully we all walk away a little more informed and appreciative of classical music. This is episode 23.3, the third episode in the Parisian Daydream series, a series dedicated to the movement of dreamy French Impressionist music that was centered in Paris at the turn of the 20th century. We've talked Debussy, we've talked Foray, we still need to discuss the third member of the French powerhouse composer trio. And it's probably to nobody's surprise that today we're going to talk all about Debussy's sometimes friend, sometimes rival, Maurice Ravel. Ravel was born in the French town of Cibor in the year 1875, which makes him 13 years younger than Debussy. Cibor is a town in the Basque region of France a mere 11 miles away from the Spanish border. His father was an engineer and an inventor, most famous for manufacturing a circus ride called the Whirlwind of Death, which was a popular attraction until it lived up to its name, causing a fatal accident at the Barnum & Bailey Circus in the year 1903. His mother was French, but she grew up in Madrid, so she often sang Spanish folk songs around the house and Ravel has credited her for the strong Spanish influence that often appears in his work. Although Ravel had little to no interest in engineering, his father was also keenly knowledgeable about music, even though he himself was only an amateur. He knew enough to fuel young Ravel's ambition, however, and he started him in piano lessons at the age of seven. While the boy wasn't a prodigy on the level of Mozart by any means, music came naturally to him with little required effort. He became enamored with some of the more avant-garde Russian composers that were really pushing the envelope, namely Rimsky-Korsakov. In 1889, Ravel earned a spot at the Paris Conservatoire by playing works by Chopin during his audition. Although he won first prize in a contest at the school shortly after entering, he quickly realized that he didn't hold a candle to his peers in regard to piano performance. He instead focused his attention on trying to develop his edge as a composer. He was a solid student, but not exceptional. Not really putting much effort into his studies. The Paris Conservatoire was not exactly the place for average students, however. It required its students to excel. Ravel was eventually expelled from the school in 1895 because he had not won any significant prizes in three years, which was a requirement for students to continue. It was around this time that Ravel met eccentric Parisian composer and friend of the podcast, Eric Satie. Ravel and Debussy were two of the first subscribers to Satie's modern music, often mining inspiration for their own work. Ravel was readmitted to the Conservatoire in 1898, but this time around, he was to focus on composition with his new teacher, Gabriel Fauré. 
who we just so happened to talk about in the last episode. Foray saw Ravel's talent, and he praised his wealth of imagination. However, the Conservatoire was a conservative place, and the director did not appreciate Ravel's progressive mind. A fellow student said that Ravel was a marked man, against whom all weapons were good. He was expelled once again in 1900 for the same reason, failure to win any significant prizes. He did keep in touch with his teacher Foray, however, and he continued his work as a composer. Being expelled from the same school twice compelled Ravel to join a group of artists, poets, and musicians called the Hooligans, self-described artistic outcasts. The members of this group shifted wildly over the years, but at one time included ultra-famous modern composer Igor Stravinsky. The Hooligans were ardent fans of Claude Debussy, and they supported all public performances of his work, trying their best to drown out the voices of his harshest critics. Ravel regarded Debussy as a living legend, and he tried his best to temper his inspiration without crossing the line of outright mimicry. He writes, Debussy's genius was obviously one of great individuality, creating its own laws, constantly in evolution, expressing itself freely, yet always faithful to the French tradition. For Debussy, the musician and the man, I have had profound admiration, but by nature, I am different from Debussy. I think I have always personally followed a direction opposed to that of his symbolism. Despite his best efforts to distinguish his style from Debussy's, Ravel's music was difficult to describe without mentioning Debussy's in the same breath. Both were labeled under the title of Impressionist, although neither would describe their own music that way. Some would argue that Debussy's style is more improvisational and spontaneous, while Ravel's is a more meticulous craft of form. This also tracks with the amount of music each produced during their lifetimes. Debussy was a prolific composer with over 140 works, while Ravel was notorious for painstakingly slow work, only composing around 60 works throughout his career, and only about 30 of those were for the piano. Even though the two composers were friendly, albeit not very close. Their fan bases were constantly on the verge of war. And since they couldn't leave nasty comments on YouTube videos or tweets, most of this public vitriol took place in publications. This divide amongst the music community eventually manifested as a rift between the composers themselves, with Ravel stating to Debussy, it's probably better for us, after all, to be on frigid terms for logical reasons. And as the music world was divided, so was the rest of the world. France entered World War I in 1914, when Germany invaded its border. Even though his fame would have given him an easy out, Ravel tried to enlist in the Air Force. However, he was rejected due to his age at 40 and a minor heart condition that he had. He ended up driving a lorry for the infantry, driving weapons at night under the threat of German bombs. The war took a toll on him mentally and physically, 
and he suffered from amoebic dysentery and frostbite. He did walk away from the war with his life, though, so things could have been worse. After the war, his already slow pace of composition halted to the speed of a lethargic snail. But it was the era where he wrote his most famous work, Bolero. Taking a page out of the book of Satie, Bolero was a compositional experiment for Ravel. A 17-minute piece devoid of contrast and musical expression, essentially reduced to a giant crescendo. It was an enormous hit. Ravel was simultaneously pleased and appalled. At the end of Bolero's premiere, an elderly woman stood up and yelled, Rubbish! To which Ravel responded, Well, she got the message. He'd go on to sum up his career, saying, I've written only one masterpiece, Bolero. Unfortunately, there's no music in it. This little musical experiment ended up defining Ravel's legacy, a life of a self-described musical outcast who never quite managed to escape Debussy's looming shadow. But luckily for Ravel, he was not a one-hit wonder. While his musical output isn't huge, especially once we reduce it down to the work for solo piano, it shares a high level of quality and it's often included in lists of the most difficult works on the instrument. The piece we're going to look at today is not one of those works. It's actually one of Ravel's more approachable pieces. One that he wrote in 1899 while he was studying under Foray at the Conservatoire. It's titled Pavon pour un infant de fante. Or in English, Pavon for a dead princess. Ravel described his piece as an evocation of a pavan that a little princess might, in former times, have danced to at the Spanish court, like in a painting by Diego Velazquez. So I don't think the title is as morbid as it initially sounds. I think Ravel was referring to the fact that this was a dance from history that no one alive danced to anymore. Or it possibly could have something to do with the dedicatee of the piece, Princess de Polignac. Ravel performed the piece several times at her home, so it would seem pretty rude to refer to his patron as a dead princess. A pavon is a slow, processional dance that was popular during the European Renaissance. The title is derived from the Spanish word pavon, meaning peacock, which befits a dance where aristocrats like little princesses were featured wearing exquisite gowns. 
If you recall, Ravel's mother was Spanish, so perhaps she sang these classic melodies around the house while he was growing up. Ravel set the dance in the key of G major, the key of magnificent fantasy. Rustic, idyllic, poetic, lyrical, calm and satisfied, tenderness and gratitude. It's a gentle key of peace. The pavon is written in the rondo form of A-B-A-C-A. And if we know anything about rondo forms, we know we have a main theme that we're going to label A, and we'll hear it three times throughout this piece, albeit slightly differently each time. The piece opens with the main theme in its most bare presentation. A slow-moving, beautiful melody over broken chords. Section B is marked très lointain, meaning very distant. It's the quietest, most delicate section of the piece. The melody passes off from right hand to left hand, while the bass plays a pedal point, meaning it remains static on the same note. In this case, B natural. True to Rondo form, we know the A section is about to return, but Ravel does something a little more interesting than what we're used to hearing with Rondos. Instead of simply repeating the A section note for note, he builds upon the theme each time we hear it. The second time around, Ravel beefs up the accompaniment. Instead of simple broken arpeggios, now we hear fuller chords, with the left hand leaping up and down across octaves. Part C is the biggest departure for this piece. First of all, the key changes from a major key to Dorian mode, which was not commonly used in Western music during this time. This gives the piece a mysterious quality that makes it seem like it's from a foreign land, similar to what Bartok accomplished throughout his Romanian dances. This section is also home to several crescendoing rises that provide the climax to the piece.
From here, we come back to the main theme one final time. The third time around, Ravel buries the melody within a 16th note cascade, making this iteration of the theme the most sparkling and lush version yet. The Pavan concludes with a dramatic series of sweeping chords, bringing home the key of G major. This is Pavan pour une enfant de fonte, or Pavan for a Dead Princess, by Maurice Ravel.
Well, we've hit three of the biggest composers of 20th century France, but I couldn't leave this era without one more piece from Debussy. And it's a big one. Probably the most well-known piece on the podcast since the very first episode when we talked about Fur Elise. So check back next time for a true crowd pleaser. I can't wait. You can find the standalone recordings of the piece we discussed today directly in the podcast feed. Check out Piano Rhapsody on SoundCloud for all of the tracks heard on this podcast and more. You can find me on Twitter at Piano Rhapsody or email me at pianorhapsodypodcast at gmail.com. If you haven't already, the best way to support the podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your podcatcher and consider rating and reviewing. It's also the easiest way to never miss a new episode and it helps the podcast gain more visibility. Thanks as always for your time and your ears. And remember, the piano keys are black and white, but they sound like a million colors in your mind.